0: It's opera quiz time. Due to the complexity of the text of Die Frau ohne Schatten, the stresses put upon the work during the war, and some disappointing first productions, Richard Strauss sometimes referred to Die Frau as Die Frosch in his personal correspondences. What does Die Frosch translate to in English? Stay tuned to learn this and more about Strauss's colourful opera Die Frau ohne Schatten in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.
1: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Die Frosch is the
0: German word for the frog. While Strauss may have playfully given this unfavorable nickname to Die Frau Schatten due to the many difficulties in staging the opera, he also regarded it as one of his greatest achievements. He once said, It has succeeded nevertheless and has made a deep impression, and music lovers in particular consider it to be my most important work. I'm Dr. Naomi Baratera, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, pianist Brian Zeger takes a closer look at this staple of the operatic repertoire.
2: Of the major operas of Richard Strauss, Die Frau ohne Schatten is the most complex and enigmatic. Extremely difficult to produce, it demands five singers with heroic voices and superhuman stamina, a vivid scenic imagination for its magical landscapes, and a director who must help the audience unravel one of the most complicated allegorical plots in any opera. It contains some of the noblest and most exciting music in Strauss's canon, yet many listeners who love the music of Die Frau ohne Schatten remain puzzled by the layers of imagery and symbol which seem to hang like a thick veil between the story and the story's meaning. Some of these complexities have to do with the opera's long gestation and its place in the creative lives of both Hofmannsthal and Strauss. Hugo von Hofmannsthal was at the height of his powers as playwright, poet, and librettist when he and Strauss embarked on this ambitious new work. They had two highly successful collaborations behind them, but these projects were very different. Electra was a reworking of a potent Greek myth. Here the dramatic stakes were already high simply through the choice of subject. Their next opera, De Rosenkavalier, though an original work, was based largely on dramatic material from French farces, with their time-honored bag of theatrical tricks, from mistaken identity to love at first sight. The milieu of Rosenkavalier was familiar to audiences and provided some delightful time travel to a world of wealth, powdered wigs, and sexual intrigue. None of their other collaborations was as painstaking, as circuitous, and as frequently interrupted as that of Frau. The first inklings of the new work appear in Hofmannstahl's diary in February 1911, Yet the opera would not be completed for seven more years and not receive its premiere until 1919. But most of the eventual storyline is already present in the sketchy diary account. It concerns two contrasting couples, the emperor and empress, and a humbler couple who hoffman Stahl here compares to Harlequin and Esmeralda from Italian Commedia dell'Arte. Soon after, he wrote Strauss about his new idea. I have something quite definite in mind which fascinates me very much. It is a magic fairy tale with two men confronting two women and for one of the women your wife might well, in all discretion, be taken as a model. That of course is wholly entre nous and not of any great importance. Anyway, she is a bizarre woman with a very beautiful soul, strange, moody, domineering and at the same time likable. She would in fact be the principal character and the whole thing a many-colored spectacle with palace and hut, priests, boats, torches, tunnels through the rock, choruses and children. The whole thing assails me with great force. Just as when creating Rosenkavalier, Hofmannsthal and Strauss made frequent allusion to the operas of Mozart, and here Hofmannsthal writes, The whole thing as I see it suspended before my eyes would, incidentally, stand in the same relation to the magic flute as Rosenkavalier does to Figaro, not in either case an imitation, but bearing a certain analogy. One cannot, of course, hope to equal the enchanting naivete of many scenes in the magic flute, But the whole conception is, I think, a very happy and promising one. When you come here, we must set aside for ourselves more than once a couple of quiet hours so that I can explain the project to you in all detail. In May, Strauss sent a letter asking, can't I get a finished draft or maybe even a first act to look at sometime soon? But the author was busy with other projects. Sixteen months passed before he finally wrote the composer... Because I know it will give you pleasure, I am writing to tell you that Die Frau ohne Schatten has now taken a powerful hold on my mind. At long last I have finally possessed myself of this subject, step by step, scene by scene, every transition, every climax, the overall shape of the whole work, and yet at the same time the details, so that I can say to myself, this is safe. May it be given to us to carry it through as I now see it before me. The literary and mythological sources of Frau are diverse and confusing, contributing to a wealth of imagery and symbol which can seem daunting. Hofmannsthal was fiercely well-read and truly Catholic in his tastes. He extracted elements from both European and Asian tales, combining these folkloric motifs into an atmosphere which feels vaguely Eastern, certainly non-European, but more than anything, achieves a kind of universality through its indeterminate sense of time and location. There are elements from the Arabian Nights, from diverse folk tales of India, Persia and China, and most appropriately for Hofmannsthal's position in the long tradition of German letters, from Ruckert and Goethe. These early Romantic writers were fascinated by the exotic otherness of the East, expressing their interest in a literary trend which became known as Orientalism. Goethe translated the ancient Persian poet Hafez in poems which would become better known through their great settings by Schubert and other leader composers. So Hofmannsthal's casting of a wide net over world culture was a continuation of a tradition of cultural appropriation which permeated European letters and explodes any neat categories of East and West or ancient and modern. No wonder that with all this rich material to contribute to his libretto, Hoffmannsthal took his time. For it was still many months before Strauss saw his librettist's tantalizing promises realized in the form of a working libretto. Hoffmannsthal was also writing a new version of Ariadne auf Naxos, their correspondence shows that this multi-stage transformation of what began as a version of Molière's Bourgeois Gentilhomme was a similarly long and convoluted process. hoffmann felt that the ideas that generated the action of ohne Schatten* were so complex that he wrote a prose version of the narrative on a kind of parallel track with the opera libretto. By writing this prose version, he was able to manipulate the poetic symbols which permeate the story without regard to what might be feasible in a theatrical presentation. The viewer who is confused by the proliferation of symbols and layers of allegory in Frau will at times find in this prose version a very helpful guide. Critics who write about Strauss's operas often encounter certain parallels and groupings to try to sort out his bafflingly diverse output. Elektra and Salome are considered radical innovative works despite the fact that they are relatively early in Strauss's canon. Intermezzo and Capriccio are classed as chamber operas, less devoted to vocal display and more to dramatic and verbal nuance. By this reckoning, Die Frau ohne Schatten is always regarded as Strauss's most Wagnerian score. Frau certainly recalls Wagner by its sheer scale. Its three sprawling acts have a great sense of breadth and expansiveness. The score employs an enormous orchestra, amplified by an immense battery of percussion and several offstage choruses, including children's chorus. Just as in Wagner's Ring, the allegorical plot takes place simultaneously in a human world and a mythical world ruled by gods. One of the obstacles to fully understanding Frau is the complicated prehistory of the central characters, which one must understand before the curtain goes up. In this, Hoffmannsthal and the Wagner of Parsifal and the Ring have something in common. Rather than showing all the relevant action on stage, it is left to certain characters to clue the audience in through lengthy narrations. In the case of Frau, most of the mysteries can be cleared up by understanding the peculiar nature of the Empress and her unique situation. She is the daughter of Kaikobad, the god who rules the world of this opera, much in the way that Zarastro rules the world of the Magic Flute. The setting of the story is an imaginary empire in the southeastern islands, to quote the libretto. Kaikobad has given his daughter a talisman which enables her to transform herself at will. Over the course of the opera we learn that she has been, at times, a gazelle, a bird and a fish. It is as a gazelle that she first encountered the emperor, who, hunting with his falcon, shot her, whereupon she transformed herself into a woman. In their first passionate embraces, she misplaced the talisman and was thus fixed in her human form. She and the emperor share a passionate attachment marked by entire nights of love-making and days filled with the emperor's hunting expeditions, in which the empress is left alone with her constant companion, the nurse or Amme. Eleven months have passed since their first encounter. When the curtain rises, the nurse is met by a mysterious messenger from Kaikobad that has been sent to check up on the Empress to determine whether she has yet become pregnant, or in Hofmannsthal's imagery, which gives the opera its title, whether she has yet gained a shadow. This is a crucially important point because, according to the rules of the realm, if she does not prove the fertility of her union with the mortal Emperor, Kaikobad will turn the Emperor to stone. The somber, portentous nature of this meeting is immediately clear in the first notes of the opera, Kaikobad's three-note theme, solemnly intoned three times by a choir of tubas. This three-note motif is particularly resonant because it is determined by the sound of Kaikobad's three-syllable name. Each time the name of the fearful god is invoked, it will be to this falling, punctuated three-note motif. Strauss used much the same device in Electra by beginning the score with a blazing rendition of the Agamemnon motif, also modeled exactly on the scansion of Agamemnon's name. The listener immediately understands that the presence of these two towering father figures in both operas especially haunts both of their daughters. Their motifs sound through both operas like an idée fixe, even though neither of these all-powerful fathers ever appears. In the opening scene between the Nurse and the Messenger, we learn of both the urgency of the task which faces the Empress and the strange, ambivalent role of the Nurse. She is powerfully devoted to the Empress and clearly jealous of her relatively recent marriage. She describes herself like Electra, as lying like a dog at the emperor's threshold. If the emperor is indeed turned to stone, she will be allowed to return to Kaikobad's realm and thus escape the human world which she loathes. We hear her almost romantic worship of the empress in a phrase sung here by Hannah Schwartz, which becomes one of the empress's main motifs. She sings of the Empress, she has no shadow, light passes through her as through glass. We will hear this soaring motif again in the Empress's entrance music. Here, Strauss's superb sense of orchestral color comes to the fore. The Empress's early appearances in the opera are accompanied by delicate combinations of solo violin, harps, and celeste. Contrast this with the somber orchestration of another prominent motif, first sung by the Messenger. This ominous descending four-note sequence signals the emperor's death. Er wird zu Stein. He will turn to stone. This radical difference in sonority is no accident and was present in Strauss's ideas about the work from the outset. When they were first discussing their ideas for Frau, before Hofmannsthal had put a word on paper, he and the composer took a car trip through Italy, providing them with a rare stretch of uninterrupted creative time. Hoffmannsthal recalls in a letter to Strauss, written two years later, that was a brilliant idea you had in the moonlight between San Michele and Bozen of accompanying the upper world with the Ariadne orchestra and the denser, more colorful atmosphere on earth with the full orchestra. This contrast between transparent and thick orchestration is plainest in Act I before the two worlds meet. Given the many nocturnal scenes throughout the opera, it's wonderful to think that perhaps there is a connection between the gossamer textures of the Ariadne chamber orchestra and the moonlit Italian night through which a young composer and writer drove, conjuring up the exotic atmosphere of an eastern island kingdom. The messenger's parting words are Remember, three days, the short time remaining for the empress to acquire the elusive shadow. This opera abounds in triplets, the most pervasive being the three spheres of action, the spirit world, the in-between world of the emperor and empress, and the human world of Barak and his wife. In the opening of the opera, we heard Kaikobad's motif three times, echoing perhaps the threefold fanfares which introduced Mozart's magic flute. This is certainly no accident, as we recall Hoffmann Stahl's first letter to Strauss when he suggested that Frau would be closely related to the magic flute, as Rosenkavalier is closely related to Mozart's Figaro. The atmosphere changes completely with the disappearance of the messenger and the emperor's entrance. The mood of sinister foreboding gives way to the outgoing masculine vigor of the young husband. In his first aria, we hear a motif which expresses his dual passions as both a hunter and a lover. René Kollos sings the part of the emperor, and the thrilling orchestral playing is by the Orchestra of the Bavarian Radio, conducted by Wolfgang Savalisch. This is one of the most tuneful motifs in the entire opera and will be often repeated both in this lusty, surging tempo as well as in a slower, more reflective mood as his attachment to the empress grows and becomes more tender. In this demanding first aria, the empress sings of his passion for his new bride and her mysterious transformation from a hunted gazelle to a beautiful woman. We also learn of the shadowy connection of both the emperor and empress with the emperor's favorite falcon, who first targeted the fleeing gazelle but was then wounded by the emperor in an attempt to keep the gazelle from harm. This red falcon, though never seen by the audience, later takes on vocal form as she warns the empress that the emperor will be turned to stone if she fails to bear a child. This motif, like the petrifaction motif, will return constantly throughout the opera with its distinctive repeated notes ornamented with grace notes to suggest the falcon's raucous cries. The emperor goes off on a three-day hunting expedition. Note again the reiteration of the number three, typical of the dense repetition of imagery and numbers in Hofmannsthal's text, and Strauss begins another of his magical orchestral transitions to prepare for the entrance of the empress. The exuberant music of the emperor's farewell now gives way to an aviary of bird noises, a twittering outdoor version of the bird calls which wake the sleepy lovers at the beginning of Derose and Cavalier. Hoffmannsthal's long delay in producing a libretto which so frustrated Strauss may have brought a corollary benefit here. During this long wait, Strauss wrote the extraordinary, though seldom performed, Alpine Symphony, a sort of musical documentary of 24 hours' worth of spectacular meteorological occurrences on an alpine peak. His fantastic skill in evoking nature at its most picturesque, which is the raison d'être of the Alpine Symphony, would also provide the superb sense of musical scenery in Frau, and pose an eternal challenge to stage designers who must try to come up with visual equivalents of Strauss's sonic wizardry. Those of us who love Frau often lament its relatively infrequent productions. As I mentioned at the outset, much of the reason for its long absences from international opera stages has to do with the great difficulty in finding singers who can encompass its five leading roles. We've heard some of the Emperor's high-lying music and encountered the extravagances of Strauss's mammoth orchestra. The vocal volume and amplitude needed to soar over the orchestral surges are not often found in voices that can also master Strauss's extremes of range. In the Empress's exquisite first aria, the soprano is called on not only to sing one high note after another, but also to execute rapid passage work and staccati, fast articulated notes, which few dramatic sopranos have in their arsenal. The fine empress in this recording is Cheryl Studer. But the empress's lyrical recollections of her meeting with the emperor are broken into by the falcon's stern warnings. She now recalls reading an inscription engraved on the lost talisman and remembers that the year's term imposed by Kaikobad is nearly up. This important realization is often lost on the audience, even in the current era of supertitles, because it is mentioned only in passing. The empress's realization that she must travel to the human world seems to come almost out of nowhere. Here is an example where Hoffmannsthal's prose narration is much clearer in actively fleshing out the Empress's developing awareness. In the narration, the Empress and Nurse tempt the falcon to deliver to them the crucial talisman on which they read the Emperor's fate. Needless to say, an aviary delivery is difficult to achieve on the opera stage. As opera-goers, we must be content with the Empress's inner recollections. This is one of many examples where the distillation of Hofmannsthal's complex story into theatrical form has left enormous challenges for directors and performers. The Empress and Nurse now launch into a lengthy duet in which the Empress's desire to encounter the human world is contrasted with the Nurse's intense hatred of men, which she expresses in no uncertain terms. The air men breathe to us is the stench of death. What to them is pure stinks to us of rusty iron, coagulated blood and corpses. These gothic lines are typical of the nurse's many long passages. Almost all of her music is fiendishly difficult to sing. Her malevolence is expressed in lines which range from the stentorian high notes of dramatic sopranos to the guttural utterances of the lowest contraltos, yet another reason why Frau is so difficult to cast. Her jagged lines contrast with the heroic resolve of the empress in their ensuing duet. The Empress's concern for the Emperor is clear as the orchestra sings out his most memorable theme. As their duet ends, Strauss pulls out all the stops to depict their descent from the spirit world to earth in a brilliant orchestral interlude. Here the composer borrows some elements from the descent to Nibelheim, which bridges the first two scenes of Wagner's Das Rheingold. Hoffmann-Stahl understood that these transitions, which can only be hinted at in the libretto, would be superb opportunities for Strauss. He wrote the composer, The transitions, seven of them, from one sphere to the other, arouse in me a kind of envy for the composer who will have the chance of filling out with music what I leave blank, where I can only enjoy the abstract idea of the higher and the nether world. Here's an excerpt from the music for that first scene change, beginning with the emperor's motif, followed by thunderous appearances of the Kaikobad motif and the ominous petrification theme. ¶¶ Beyond the virtuosic counterpoint of musical motifs, the listener is led from a world of optimistic D major with innocent diatonic harmonies that would not be out of place in Schubert to the dissonant chromatic music which describes the tortured existence of our human protagonists, the dire Barak and his unnamed wife. In this second scene of Act I, we are introduced to a completely different reality. Barak lives in a simple hut and ekes out a meager existence which must support his wife and his three ill-tempered brothers, referred to in the score as the One-Eyed, the One-Armed, and the Hunchbacked. Like the downtrodden Nibelungen, their lives are nasty and brutish, filled with back-breaking work and constant fighting, particularly with Barak's wife, who despises them, and whose first action in the opera is to throw a pail of water over them and address them as shameless dogs. Their music, with its close counterpoint and constant shouting, is reminiscent of the music of the five Jews in Zalome. These first lines of the Dyer's wife give us a strong taste of the character Hoffmannsthal described to Strauss in his first letter about the opera as strange, moody, and domineering. A short digression here may clear up a misunderstanding. Because Barak's wife is not given a name, she is often referred to by commentators as the Frau, a way of denoting an unnamed woman, But of course, this leads to a confusion with the Frau of the title, The Woman Without a Shadow, since Barak's wife is perfectly capable of bearing a child. In fact, the whole plot of the opera turns on this point. Not many operas have two powerful soprano roles vying for our attention. Hofmannsthal was aware of this potential diffusion of focus and warned Strauss at several points in their correspondence that the Empress is the central character in the drama on which the plot turns. He wrote... One thing you must not must never forget, the empress is, for the spiritual meaning of the opera, the central figure, and her destiny, the pivot of the whole action. The dyer's wife and the dyer are admittedly the strongest figures, but it is not on them that the plot is focused. Their fate is subordinate to the destiny of the empress. The conflicted humanity of the dyer's wife makes her, for some viewers, a compelling character and she certainly dominates most of the scenes in which she is present through her powerful rages and highly volatile personality. Her conflicts with her husband, Barak, provide the dramatic fuel of the entire opera. Barak's personality could not be more different from his wife's. He is wise, loving, and amazingly tolerant of her petulant tirades. Perhaps because he is the most sympathetically drawn figure in the drama, he is the only one of the five main characters that the librettist has given a name— We know that in Hofmannsthal's first letter to Strauss, he admitted that he drew elements of the Dyer's wife's personality from his real-world acquaintance with Strauss's wife, Pauline, who was by all accounts one of Hofmannsthal's least favorite people. Thus, Strauss's musical portrait of Barak is, at least on an unconscious level, a sort of musical self-portrait. Indeed, Barak gets most of the juiciest lyrical moments in the whole work. Alfred Muff sings the role of Barak in this typical passage where he answers his wife's angry rantings, saying that he praises her contrariness and will await his much-desired children with contentment in his heart. There's no question after this glowing symphonic tribute to Barak's humanity that the listener will be on his side from now on. Barak's wife meets his melting lyricism with a scornful refusal. This pattern will continue through much of the opera. She blames Barak for her childlessness and insists that he abandon his dream of a family. When he leaves bearing his wares to market, the nurse and empress suddenly appear. They are dressed in servants' clothes and address the dyer's wife as a lady feigning astonishment that she is living in such miserable conditions. This sets the tone of all the upcoming scenes in Barak's hut. The nurse plays the ringleader, coaxing the dyer's wife into ever more extravagant dreams of riches and love, while the empress looks on with growing horror. The wife's initial skepticism gradually changes when the nurse, using her magical powers, turns the wretched hut into a palace and clothes Barak's wife in jewels and finery, Again, Strauss's orchestra, here augmented by offstage chorus, works the real magic. The operatic forerunner of this scene is clearly the appearance of the flower maidens in Wagner's Parsifal. The Faustian bargain is made clear. The dyer's wife can have all these riches and more by renouncing the shadow which she has already claimed to her husband is of no value to her. The nurse, with her bitter hatred of mankind, is especially good at framing the argument. She asks the wife, do you want a bunch of little dyers to come trampling through you to turn your body into a high road? Are your glorious breasts to droop and wither so soon?" Barak's return only leads to another tense standoff, particularly after the nurse's magic turns their conjugal bed into two separate beds, and Barak is left alone at the end of the act. The nurse's magic is beginning to cast its spell, frightening the spirits of Barak's unborn children, represented here by a ghostly offstage chorus of solo sopranos and children's voices. unborn children have a large and active presence in Hofmannsthal's prose narrative, again an idea which works better on the printed page than in the opera house. Barak sadly beds down for the night, separated from his wife and further away than ever from his dreams of being a father. His painful resignation is made more poignant by the song of the three night watchmen, who intone a blessing over the married couples of the town, singing, You, lying together in loving arms, are the bridge through which the dead are returned to life. Blessed be your love's work. This tender passage, of course, recalls the song of the night watchman in Wagner's Die Meistersinger and similarly provides a tender and lyrical ending for this turbulent first act. Just as in the end of the first act of Rosenkavalier, where the marshalin's quiet mood fills the stage, Barak's serene music here is itself like a benediction. His brief phrase, Zeisten, so be it, also echoes the Marshallans in its resigned wisdom. The Empress now begins to confront an anguishing moral dilemma. If she does succeed in winning the shadow from Barak's wife, she will save her husband from certain death, but at the cost of depriving the saintly Barak of the one thing he desires most in life, children. This impossible choice torments her, causing the nightmare we witness in the next scene. She is tossing in her sleep, obsessed by visions of her husband's ghastly death and an unworldly summons by offstage chorus To drink from the water of life, (laughs) Zum Lebenswasser. This image of the water of life is another of Hofmannsthal's inventions that, while very theatrical, is so open to interpretation that audiences are often as puzzled as they are moved. The Empress herself is horrified by the unforeseen consequences of her search for fertility. In the stratospheric end of the aria, she cries out, everything stems from my own evil doing, I bring death to one, disaster to the other. Alas, Barak, everything which I touch I kill. I would rather that I be turned to stone." All the characters have now been brought to the crisis point. Now that we have reached the final and fifth scene of Act Two, we can see Hofmannsthal's design for the act, which he described in synopsis form. Act Two, he wrote, now the trials begin, for all four must be purified. The dyer and his wife, the emperor and empress, the one pair too dull and earthly, the other too proud and remote from the earth. Barak opens this last scene, observing that even in the middle of the day, the earth is sunless. The wife has reached her breaking point, and the heavens are darkening, as she prepares to agree to the nurse's fatal bargain. In the prose narrative, she comes to this decision after an emotionally decisive visit to her mother's grave. Here again, the librettist was able to give voice to an internal psychological process, which would have impossibly detoured the stage action. Her furious outburst is on a par with the rages of Electra. She claims that while Barak was hard at work, she received her lover in their house. Her frenzied diatribe builds to the point of no return. She cries, I put away from my body the children as yet unborn, and my womb will not bear fruit to you or to any other man. Uta Vinsing is the Stentorian dyer's wife. Consistent repetitions of the same pitch are the stuff of operatic oaths stretching back to Mozart's Commendatore and Wagner's Ortrud. Her renunciation has an immediately shocking effect. Barak shouts for a fire to be lit, and his three brothers instantly cry out that she no longer casts a shadow. Both Barak and his brothers here actually speak, an unusual effect which Strauss will return to with great power in the third act. The nurse is eager to clinch the bargain while the empress recoils in horror. Barak lifts the sword to kill his wife when suddenly the whole drama changes course. In the moment of crisis, Barak's wife admits that she has not been unfaithful indeed, only in thought, and claims that she, in the moment when Barak raised his sword to kill her, has witnessed a man she had never seen before, whom she accepts as her judge. This cataclysmic emotional shift is paralleled by natural cataclysms. In stage directions that have bedeviled every design team that attempts Frau, Hoffmann Stahl calls on an earthquake to swallow up the dyer and his wife their hut to collapse, a flood to pour in, and the nurse and empress to make their exit by boat. Wagner at the end of Guter Demmerung gave less complicated instructions, and that was for the end of the entire world. But again, Strauss comes through, ending the act with a musical apocalypse which compensates for any weaknesses in stagecraft. Let's take a brief intermission before we plunge into Act Three to look at where we are in the drama. Hofmannsthal wrote about Act II as a series of trials for the four main characters. The least complex of these four is the Emperor, about whom Hofmannsthal wrote, He is the least prominent. His fairy tale fate of being turned to stone and redeemed again is his most striking feature. His traits are typical rather than individual. He is the hunter and the lover." In the second act scene, he came to understand that the empress had lied to him, but since he is not aware of the death sentence which is hanging over his head, he remains outside the main thrust of the drama. Barak and his wife are clearly at the breaking point, but their relationship makes a complete reversal at the moment when Barak raises his sword to kill his wife. The rest of the opera will see them fully reconcile, but essentially the underlying strength of their bond has already asserted itself. This leaves the empress, who, in Hofmannsthal's words, is the most important figure in the opera. He goes on to write, "'How she becomes a human being, that is the point of the action. She, not the other one, is the woman without a shadow. She has not a great deal to say, but what she does say is always extremely significant. Throughout, a light of spirituality radiates from her, and each stage on her road to humanity is marked, as it were, by flaming beacons.'" In her first aria, she was presented almost as a young girl with no experience of the world and no guile. Through her initiation into the human world, she has witnessed the basest and most violent human emotions, but rather than retreating into her former isolation, she has learned compassion. Her development has parallels to Brynhildes in Act II of Wagner's Die Walküre, who begins the act a brash, one-dimensional warrior, but over the course of the act is taught through Wotan's monologue and her dialogue with Zygmunt about disillusion, sacrifice, and tragic conflict. Zygmunt refuses the rewards of Valhalla to remain with Sieglinde. The dyer's wife refuses the riches promised by the nurse because of her deeper loyalty to Barak. The empress is now faced with an even more complicated dilemma. She must choose between her husband's inevitable death and the cruelest possible blow to Barak, The loss of his wife's ability to bear children. Returning to Hoffmannsthal's helpful synopsis, he writes of the third act The spirit world opens up, surrounding those who are being tried, but the last and most exalted ordeal is still to come. The opening of the third act finds the human couple imprisoned in two underground chambers, unaware of one another. They each sing of their love for one another in a duet modeled in large part on the celebrated Act III trio in Der Rosenkavalier. Both ensembles share the same glowing D flat major tonality, shifting to a shining E major climax. Both begin with memorable lyric phrases, which are taken up imitatively by all the characters and become a refrain throughout the ensemble. Here is the heart of the duet the mortal couple's first moment of dramatic and musical harmony, rising to a high pitch of shared passion. An offstage voice summons the couple to their next trial, recalling the invisible voice of the speaker in Mozart's magic flute. The scene changes to the threshold of a majestic temple with the empress and nurse arriving in the boat in which they made their quick escape at the end of act two. As usual, the nurse advises the empress to take the easy way out. In one unintentionally comic line she sings, tuck up your skirts and run for it. But the empress understands that her arrival at this temple signals Kaikobad's call to judgment. She rises to the challenge in a stirring aria in which she resolves to share the emperor's fate. She sings, What binds him binds me, what he suffers I will suffer. The nurse continues to resist the empress's determination to submit to her trial. In yet another heroic aria, the empress bids farewell to her nurse, declaring in a triumphant passage that she now belongs to the human world. The surging recapitulation of the emperor's theme which follows tells us that her newfound largeness of spirit includes him as well. Peikobad's messenger now intervenes to dispatch the evil nurse once and for all. Strauss requested Hofmannsthal to provide him with a text for a climactic exit scene modeled on Lohengrin's Ortrude. In the end, she is sentenced to live out her existence among the human beings she so despises. The scene shifts again to the interior of the temple, where the empress must confront her fate. Strauss again shows himself the master of orchestral color, in a shimmering passage for solo violin. All the hysterics and high drama are behind us. The Empress's spiritual journey is reaching its solemn end. We are reminded of the sublime moments in Strauss's symphonic poems, like the death of Don Quixote or the heavenly calm of his tone poem, Death and Transfiguration. This transcendent lyricism in the key of E-flat major would recur in the last of Strauss's works for voice, the final moments of the four last songs. In Lehmann's memoir of the creation of Frau, she writes, Never, never shall I forget the voice of Yeritza as, emerging out of the violin music, it reached the very pinnacle of purity, as clear a sound as that of any violin. This scene brings back some of the most intensely beautiful memories of my whole life. It's sobering to remember that these blissful passages were written, respectively, during the worst horrors of World War I, and in the case of the four last songs, after the devastation of World War II. They bring to mind Strauss's words in a letter of 1917, we artists must try to keep our eyes open to the beautiful and the sublime and place ourselves at the service of truth, which will, in the end, as surely as light pierces darkness, penetrate the dark web of lies and deceit into which the deluded world seems to have spun itself for the present. The Empress summons Kaikobad in a jagged phrase which recalls the treacherous leaps of Wagner's Kundry and the heroine of Schoenberg's Erwartung. Strauss pulls out all the stops in his orchestral depiction of the Emperor, who is almost entirely petrified, with only his eyes still showing signs of life. In this ultimate moment of decision, the empress speaks rather than sings. We recall that just before Barak raised his sword to slaughter his wife in Act II, he also spoke. Strauss specifically requested this effect in a letter to Stahl when he wrote, There ought to be a big explosion here, such as the first frightful human cry bursting the empress's breast. Early in his career, Strauss had written a very successful melodrama, a setting of Tennyson's Enoch Arden, and he understood the power of impassioned human speech with musical accompaniment. In most productions, the empress's 40 lines of spoken text are telescoped to her final shouted decision that she cannot sacrifice two human beings to spare the emperor. She shouts, I cannot, ich will nicht. The spell is broken and the Emperor is returned to life. The Empress has in the end attained her full humanity. Hofmannsthal chose as an epigraph to the whole work two lines of Goethe's, which in a way explain the Empress's redemption. They translate roughly, from the power which binds us all, man can be freed through self-transcendence. The Empress has accomplished this daunting task and the rest of the opera is a celebration of that act. The voices of the unborn children join in a joyous ensemble with Barak and his wife, who have finally been reunited. Barak begins the final quartet for the four principals with a jubilant melody. The two women add their voices, singing Both of us were steeled in the flames of trial Close to becoming murderers We are now rewarded with children It was a long eight years from Hofmannsthal's first Inklings of the Plot to the opera's premiere in Vienna in 1919, with many hesitations and a world war intervening. The complicated message of moral sacrifice and the many-layered story would prove daunting to decades of listeners, but serious attention to this ambitious work is richly rewarded.
0: Many thanks to pianist Brian Zeger for guiding us through the major themes in Strauss's Die Frau ohne Schatten. Met productions of this opera and more can all be seen on Met Opera On Demand today. Just visit www.metopera.org to start your seven-day free trial. And make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the Metropolitan Opera, and Opera News on all your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thanks for listening.